Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to the book of Proverbs. We have been out of the book of Proverbs for a while. We've been doing things for the, had our Bible conference over New Year's and uh, then got back into, uh, I, I preached my New Year's sermon to you last week and uh, we've just been having a great time getting some good preaching, which is, never hurts anybody. And uh, we uh, talked last week out of, book of, uh, you know, out of the book of Proverbs and we talked about uh, uh, a song in your heart, uh, a heavy heart. Uh, we went back to Psalms and we looked at how that the nation of Israel was into captivity and all the things that they were struggling with and they're having a tough time with. We talked about how it's hard to sing the Lord's songs in a strange land. Now, basically, we talked about Israel's captivity, how that they were God's chosen people for what God wanted to accomplish through the world in the Old Testament, but they fell to the world. Instead of being a witness to the world, they became one with the world. And God came down and put them into captivity by that same world system that they decided to follow. Then, if you remember, I took the inspirational application and I showed you how that uh, it's a picture of our captivity. Uh, by the world system. And we looked at two great principles that really uh, illustrate that. Uh, one of them where we talked about the, uh, somebody taking your garment uh, in the cold. And I talked about how that, that's a picture of the warmth of the Word of God that God has for us, that the weirdly blast of the world wants to, wants to just put you into an, an ice age in your life, just absolutely no friend to you in any way, shape, or form. And God's warmth of the Word of God is what keeps us. It, it protects us from that. But when we get into the world system, then, you know, somebody, the world will take that garment of the Word of God from you. Then I talked about in the second illustration how that vinegar mixed with nitrate, how that it gives off a stinking uh, smell. And we talked about how that throughout the Bible, the uh, pleasant odor, the aroma of perfume, the, the aloes, the different spices, all represent our relationship with Christ and how that uh, the Bible says that when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are a sweet savor in the nostrils of God and how our relationship as God sees it is not about what we do, but rather how we smell that aroma of the relationship we have with Christ. I showed you how that in the Song of Solomon, every chapter, it likens to you and me and our relationship with a perfumed or a spiced or uh, something that gives off a pleasant aroma that is the picture of our relationship with Christ. The real key I, I talked to you last week about was how that the Garden of Eden. You know, we look at the Garden of Eden and we think of Adam and Eve in the garden and what a beautiful place that was. How that they all controlled weather, everything was beautiful, the animals were tamed, it was just a wonderful paradise. In fact, man has tried to get back to that uh, all, through, all through history. I mean, the great pagan philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, and my favorite was Esophocles. He's tough to swallow sometimes if you read him. They all wrote about a utopia. They all wrote about a place because they knew that there was a Garden of Eden at one time. They rejected it, but man wants to get back to that. When you would go to the South Sea Islands, the uh, Tahiti and those places out there, which is literally a tropical paradise. Uh, when the British explorers and the Dutch explorers got out there and they saw that, you know what they called it? Now, they were Bible-based back in that day. You know what they called it? They called it the Solomon Islands. 
based on King Solomon and what he had with the nation of Israel. And, you know, uh, that Garden of Eden was destroyed. It was wrecked by sin. And it, it destroyed everything. One night they went to bed with the soft purrs of the animals and the birds and the peace and the quiet of the, of the relationship with God. And the next day it was all gone. From that point on, they had to build fires at night to keep warm and keep the animals away. Something had changed. They had lost that perfect estate of the Garden of Eden that God had for them through sin. And then the Bible says that Christ came down and died on the cross, and he paid your debt, my debt, for our sins. And once you become saved, even though we're in this world, I want you to know that your relationship with God should be just like the Garden of Eden. God takes care of everything in your need. God keeps you warm. God feeds you. God gives you everything. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But just like the world came down and destroyed the real Garden of Eden, the world wants to destroy the spiritual Garden of Eden that you have in your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about that last week and we, we, we uh, went through in great detail and laid it out. Now, I know that for the last four, five, six weeks, you've just been preached to. There ain't nothing wrong with that. You need to get preached to. In fact, I may change my mind and preach to you this morning because some of you look like you really need it this morning. But anyway. (laughs) But, but, you know, you've got to have a balance in everything. And today, uh, you know, we're going to learn a little more about your Bible. I couldn't, can't promise you that I won't squeeze a little preaching in someplace. But uh, the majority of it is I want to teach you something today. I want you to see some things. Most of you work with people. Our church is, is just loaded with men and women who are from the Bible Institute, from our people ministry, that you have committed your life to people. And that is the key to any ministry, the key to any church. And I want to, I always like to give you things that'll help you. I like to give you things that'll help you by teaching you some great principles of the Bible But then also I like to preach to you to keep you clean so you can use what I give you when I teach you. So there's got to be a balance. There's a balance in everything. And today we're going to move through a couple of more verses and uh, we're going to look at them. And again, at first sight as we read these, you're probably going to scratch your head and say, where's he going to go with this? Just hang on, I'll show you. Let's read it in Proverbs chapter 25, pick it up in verse 21. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman and a wide house. I like Greg Kodowski, our own missionary here. Would you stand up, Greg, and ask God blessing on the preaching this morning? Or Teaching this morning, I ain't going to preach, I'm just going to teach. Go ahead. Amen. Thank you, buddy. We're glad you're here. We love you very much, you and your boy. Now, we're going to take this and we're going to kind of separate out the verses and as we begin to lay it out. And like I've taught you many, many times, what we're going to do is we're going to establish a context first because a a text without a context is a pretext. We got to have a place we start and then we work from there. And as I've taught you many, many times, we're going to look at this thing from a doctrinal prophetic application. 
We know from our past studies that the book of Proverbs doctrinally is a picture of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. We know that in Matthew chapter 25, we got a wise man and a foolish man represented by 10 versions. Five were wise and five were foolish. In Proverbs, we see the personification of that and we see Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man. We know that uh, uh, the Antichrist is likened uh, to a, a wicked man. So in the book of Proverbs, you find a, an evil man. We know that his religion is going to be the Roman Catholic Church, and she's likened to a female deity. So you're going to find a strange woman. Everything is found in the book of Proverbs to doctrinally lay that out. At the same time, we have learned and we know from our studies in the Scriptures that even though the Bible has a prophetic application, it will also have a practical application. And we can learn from that in our everyday life, and it also has a historical application. Now, I want to I read here verse 24 for you, and let's establish the context. And I start here for a reason. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Now, this will be the second, if you've got a trained eye and you're remembering what we're teaching, this is the second time we find this verse uh, as a reference point in the book of Proverbs. The last time we saw it was Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, a while back. And we saw the same verse. And you'll remember when we did that, that I took the time to take you back to a couple of places in the Bible, Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses uh, 15 through 21. And I read for you, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, if you're paying attention. Stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him, here it comes, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and that give suck in those days. Pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now here's the context. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation. Now I also gave you Isaiah chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. So let's look at that one again. The burden of the valley of vision. What aileth thee now that thou art, here it comes, holy gone up to the housetops. Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, that slain slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from far. Therefore, said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Now, here it comes. Verse 5. Context. For the day is a day of trouble and treading town and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. The context here is again the tribulation period. Now here's what you got. If you remember when we talked to this, and I say this quickly just to refresh your mind as we go back through this. We know the tribulation lasts seven years. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, Remember the first three and a half years, the Antichrist brings on a false peace, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He talks about peace and safety. And then at the middle of the week, that three and a half year mark, at the middle of Daniel's 70th week, 
the Antichrist turns on the nation of Israel, and this is called in the Bible the abomination of desolations. This is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 8, and, and 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, verse 4. It's a time when the Antichrist, at that midpoint, goes into the temple, sits down in the temple and declares himself to be God and demands that all the world worship him. That is called the abomination of desolations. It's just like what Nebuchadnezzar does in 606 B.C. and then Shennacherib does a little before that in 721 B.C. and he takes the nation of Israel and turns on them and tries to wipe them out. And both of those men, Nebuchadnezzar and Shennacherib, are types of the Antichrist in the Bible. The Jews will hear of it They'll go up on the housetop, Isaiah chapter 22, Matthew chapter 24. They'll go up on the housetop when they hear that the Antichrist is literally coming down to Jerusalem to accomplish the abomination, the desolation, and to wipe them out. They go up on the housetop. That's what the references are. They see him coming, and then the Bible says that they flee into the wilderness. Now, in our text, the brawling woman, (laughs) not your ex-wife, the brawling woman, No, it could be. The brawling woman. Here will be the great whore, Revelation chapter 17. This will be the Antichrist religion, which we all know as the Roman Catholic system, typified through the Bible in many ways. In the book of Proverbs, we saw it when we came through Proverbs chapter 5, and then again in Proverbs chapter 7, where she is likened to a strange woman. And it's very clear when you read those passages that she's connected with a religion. And we see the best example is found in 1 Kings chapter 18 with Jezebel and Ahab. Ahab is the wickedest king that Israel ever has. And he's one of the 18 types of the Antichrist within the Old Testament. And he has a wife who was a religious prophet, prophetess, and that is Jezebel. And where Ahab is a type of the Antichrist, Jezebel is a type of his religion, the Roman Catholic Church. And in the story of 1 Kings chapter 18, you have Elijah, the, the prophet of God. I'm working on a great sneeze here, so just bear with me here. It may come at any time without warning. I think it went to Topeka. It's gone now. We're good. <laughs> now, when you go back there and you put all this into, a, into an understandable format, the Jews, when they see the Antichrist coming down, they're up on the rooftops. They see the Antichrist coming down and they, they flee into the wilderness and they hide out there as they are hunted by the Antichrist. And you'll find this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, and again in Matthew chapter 24, verse 16. And when they get into the wilderness, some of the people will help them and some of the people will persecute them. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Now, with that little understanding from a doctor, we're going to get to the practical here in a moment, but I, I, I like to lay it out so you can get these notes in your Bible because I want you to learn these things because this is, this is quite a piece of your Bible if you can get this down today. Now look at verse 23. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance uh, a, a backbiting tongue. Now, as we stay with the doctrinal for just a few more minutes, we want to get this down. The north wind driveth away rain. Now, the north wind in the Bible or north in the Bible will always be a reference to the second coming of Christ. Uh, You'll find it in Psalms chapter 75, verse 6 and 7. It says, for promotion, promotion, somebody going to get promoted, go up. 
promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west or from the south. But God is the judge. He put it down one and set up another. Notice how God told you about the, he told you about the uh, east from the west from the south. Then he put himself in the place of north. And when you study through the scriptures, you're going to find that when God comes down at the second coming of Christ, he comes from the north. And that's clear all the way through the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we talked about Ezekiel last week and about the captive down there by the river Sebar and all of that. And I, and I told you, but Ezekiel chapter 1 is a picture of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Ezekiel is down there held captive and he sees that vision, that vision is a vision of God's deliverance to the nation of Israel, which is going to take place at the second coming when God brings his people out of their captivity. And he says in verse 4, I looked and behold a whirlwind came out of the, here it comes, the north, a great cloud and a fire unfolding itself and a brightness was about it and out of the mist thereof as the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. Now, for those of you who are Bible students, there's five key words in this little verse here that every time you find them in the Bible, you want to mark them, watch them because they will be, denote the context of what you're reading as the second coming of Christ. Five of them. The first one's a whirlwind. The second one, obviously, is the north. The third one is a cloud. And then, of course, the fourth one is a fire. And then, of course, the fifth one is, is brightness. And you're going to find in Psalms chapter 48, verse 2, when it talks about heaven and where God's throne is, it says, on the sides of the north. And uh, in Job chapter 26, verse 7, the Bible says that God stretched out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. In your Bible, if you wanted to find a direct route to God, it would be due north. And when the Lord comes back, he comes from the north, comes down to this earth, the Mount Sinai, and then goes from east to west as he comes into uh, Jerusalem. And that is the, that is the uh, picture that's laid out in the Bible. And as you come down through the Bible and you see that heaven is the direction of north which God comes from, it's no wonder. We know the Bible says that we know that the Bible says that we have the Christ and we have the Antichrist. We know that the devil imitates God in every way, shape, or form. Bible tells us in the book of Corinthians that, it, that uh, it's, no, it's no mystery that the, uh, the devil's uh, ministers are transformed into the ministers of righteousness. He counterfeits everything that God does. Now, we know that heaven is north. So it's no surprising that you find that in the world system, there's two norths. There's what we call magnetic north, and there's what we call true north. Just like in this world, there's a true gospel, and then there's a false gospel. And you know, true north is based on the, uh, the stars that you pull out and you find where true north is. In our world today, when we want to find north, we go to Polaris, what we call the North Star. And we use that as a navigational point, but Polaris is about a half a degree off of true north. And it's always amazed me that it's just like false religion. The Bible says there's, there's many devices in a man's heart. There's many things that man puts out there that, is, that he betrays as being truth, but they're not. And the devil religion will get so close to the truth without actually being the truth. Just like you can get off, you can get off true north and go to magnetic north. Magnetic north, by the way, changes its position because it's based on the earth, the world. 
So it changes, it fluctuates. True north never changes. And in the world that we live in of Christianity, I want to tell you, if you're saved this morning, if you're on your way to heaven, it's because you put your hope and trust in the throne of God that is true north. And if you're caught up in some religion or some false teaching or whatever, it may look good. There's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain and build it. I'm sorry. Let me work back down here. Thank you for being here today. I'd like to take a few moments and share with you some things that uh, have come my way. I don't have a chapter and verse for that, but you front people in a row probably got a little bit in your Bible anyhow, so here we go. There's two norths. Everything in life is a counterfeit. God's going to have a true line. The devil's going to have a false line. And he's going to make that false line look so good that 98% of the world is going to buy into it. So when we find here, uh, you know, promotion come, heaven is north. Then it says it driveth away the rain. Now here's another piece of your Bible that you're going to have to learn sooner or later. In the Old Testament, you're going to find a phrase called the former and the latter rain. You'll find that in Joel 2.23, Job chapter 37.6, 2 Chronicles 6.26, 2 Chronicles 7.12, Revelation 16, Revelation 14, uh, Proverbs 16, uh, 14 through 15, Psalm 68, 3-9, Revelation 11.6, 2 Samuel 23.4, Hosea 10.12, Jeremiah 14.22, and Isaiah 5.6. No, I will not give them to you again. <laughs> You're going to find the former over and over and over again. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, any, I'm going to explain it to you. Anytime you find the former and the latter rain, the reference, hands down, is going to be to the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. Now, the definitive passage on it, if you, we like to start with definitive passage in our Bible studies, the definitive passage on it will be James chapter 5. And he says in James chapter 5, verse 7, he says, be patient. Therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord, behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive, here it comes, the early and the latter rain. Now, I got to tell you right now, the husbandman here is the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit that he's waiting for is for the nation of Israel, who is like a barren fig tree that in the millennium is going to bear fruit. But the former and the latter rain hath to come first. Now, here we go. Behold, uh, we count them happy, verse 11, which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job. You have seen the end of the Lord. Uh, The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. Now look at verse 17. Elias was a man subject uh, to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. Three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, here's what you got. In the Old Testament, Elijah was up against Ahab and Jezebel, type of the Antichrist and his religion. During that time, he shuts up heaven that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. During that three and a half years, no rain falls on the earth. At the end of that, he opens up the heavens and the rain comes down. Now, this is what you got. 
The tribulation is seven years long and divided into three and a half years each section. The first section is called the tribulation. The second three and a half is called the great tribulation. In the, in the tribulation, we know from Revelation chapter 11 that Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that come down. And they do their, they do their miracles in the tribulation exactly like they did when their Old Testament up against types of the Antichrist. Moses turns the water to blood in the tribulation just like he did up against Pharaoh, type of the Antichrist. Elijah... He shuts up heaven at the, when the Antichrist comes on the scene and that three and a half year mark and goes after Jerusalem. What he does, Elijah shows up, he shuts up heaven that it doesn't rain. And the Bible says it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And then he opens up to heaven at the end of that three and a half years. It rains and the rain brings in the second coming of Christ and brings in the millennium. That's what you've got. And at the end, the latter rain will come. The second coming will take place. And God, that's why it says the rain will drive away. The rain will drive away. The north wind will drive away the rain. And that rain is the second coming that establishes it all. And in verse 18 says that the earth will bring forth the fruit. Israel now as God's nation will bear the fruit that she's been unable to bear all down through history. And we know from our Bible that's a reference to the millennium. Now you want to get that down because that is a major piece of your Bible. And uh, if there's any confusion on it, we can talk about it Thursday night and I'll be glad to help you because I want to move on through this. But make your mental note and if I can take you into more detail, I'll be glad to on Thursday night. Now let's go back. Now that we've laid that doctrine out, let's go back. And let's see how it fits to me and you. And here's some great practical material for all of us. And there's some really important stuff here. Now let's look at verse 21. He says this, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, quickly, doctrinally, this will be the Jew in the tribulation and somebody helping them or somebody not helping them. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 26. But inspirationally, now we're going to be for us here. He's basically saying, don't do unto others like they do unto you. That's a great principle. We use the common phrase, turn the other cheek. In the Bible, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 8, you find what is called the royal law. Sometimes it's called the law of Christ. And it simply means that you love your neighbor as yourself. In our Christian relationship with each other, there should be no revenge in a Christian's heart to get back at somebody who has done you wrong. No getting even. Because when somebody does you wrong, and I'm going to tell you right now, in the Christian life, they will. If you get saved, this new life that is so wonderful, and it is, this life that now is a new beginning for you, and it is, just understand that this is the day the Lord hath made, and you're going to get it in the neck. <laughs> you learn to be happy with that because you understand that in reality, no matter what anybody does to you, says about you, if you do the right thing, they can't hurt you. And I'm going to show you that as we come down through here. When somebody does you wrong and when you do something back just like they did to you, that makes you just like them. Somebody in a confrontation has to be different. 
Somebody has to follow the principles of the Word of God. You'll never win that person to Christ or you'll never fix the problem if you cannot be like, uh, show the people that your life is different. Now, when somebody lies about you, attacks you, or does something to you, I know our first thing is to kill them all, let God sort them out. I get it. Our first inclination is to attack them back. That's the old nature. Romans 14, 1 says, ye that are strong. How many love the Bible this morning? Say amen. amen. Are you, do you study the Bible? Amen. amen. Do you fancy yourself kind of strong in the Bible? Amen. amen. That got a little weaker. <laughs> let's try that again and this time just lie for the sake of my message, okay? Well, and I'll speak for you. I would say the majority of you, and even the ones that aren't, it's not because you're a bad person, because you're learning and you're just not there yet. I don't think we have any bad people in our church. We got rid of them. (laughs) The big bad bus pulled out front, we put them on it and sent them away. It's okay. I don't think we have any bad people in our church. Well, wait a minute. I just saw one. We do. I I don't think we do. We have people that are in different stages of spiritual growth. But I'm going to say this. I think that most of you are that have been around here. You're in the Bible Institute. You're in the people. I think you have a strength in the word of God. I do. Now, you may not see it, but I see it, and I do. And maybe, and the rest of you are going to get there. So what I'm saying is this. You that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Amen. The mark of a true Christian who's got the book down is you are a problem solver. You're not a problem causer. But it takes a while to get there. But the verses say, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. I know, I know. Yeah, I'll get the moldy bread with the worms in it. No, 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 no. Now, let me say this, because you got to make yourself clear today, because in the world we live in, people don't listen, and the ones that do listen don't pay much attention. But So allow me to say this, and I know you already know this. In everything in life, there has to be a balance. And this verse doesn't mean that you just roll over and let the world kill you. So I want you to make, I want to make that clear. I mean, somebody breaks into your house at 3 o'clock in the morning. If somebody comes in here and starts shooting a place up, God forbid. This is why we have in my pulpit an iron grate in front of it. I will disappear for a few moments. <laughs> There's a tunnel underneath that leads to the parking lot. <laughs> or somebody comes into your home, a home invasion which happens all the time. And God forbid that somebody would try to rape you or abduct one of your children. I mean, I, 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 you know, you, you got to understand, this verse, if an enemy be hungry, you feel, this, there's got to be a balance in it. And I'm trying to show you the balance today so you understand, because I don't want you to think you go out of here, you know, and somebody breaks into your house and gets one of your kids and he's walking out the door and you say, go with God, my son. Well, now that I think about it, in a couple of cases, that probably would be true. <laughs> I just told my kids, they said, they was afraid. They called them, you know, they call it kidnapping. My kids called them man stealers. Remember that? 
man stealers. And they always were worried about somebody was going to come in and steal them. I, I never worried about it because I knew if they did, they would have them back in about an hour. And we'd be okay. I mean, if somebody comes in and they're going to break into your house and they're going to do you bodily harm, just forget that bodily harm, break into your house. You don't drop down to your knees and say, God, protect me. God gave you you more sense than that. Uh, You have a right to protect yourself. I don't ever preach about it much because I don't, I don't care one way or the other, but, uh, you know, in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, you have God's official position on gun control. And the NRA doesn't even know it's there. You have God's official position on, the, on gun control. I mean, in Matthew chapter 10, when he was sending them out to preach the kingdom, he told them, don't take anything with you. No script, no this, no that, no sword. And the reason why is because the kingdom was going to come. And they didn't need that protection because when the millennium came, if Christ would have established his coming and his kingdom, there'd have been no need for that. So he says in Matthew chapter 10, don't take those things with you. But ah, in Luke chapter 22, it's all changed. Now the kingdom is not coming. And in verse 35 through 38, he clearly tells them, if you don't have a sword, you go get one. Because he's saying, in essence, the kingdom's not coming now. And there's going to no, be no protection by me being here in the millennium. So you're going to have to protect your own family and yourself. Not only does he tell them to get a sword, he, tells them, he even tells them how many they should have. One of, the, one of the disciples say, well, Lord, we have two swords right here. He says, that's enough. No, I'm a literal Bible expositor. I believe everybody either have two ways to protect yourself, a 9 millimeter and a 357. <laughs> and I'm a peaceful guy. But I'm telling you, in the world that we live in today, this idea that you can just, God expects you to protect what he has given you. I mean, if somebody came in on Thursday night and tried to destroy my, uh, get up in front of everybody and destroy uh, what I've taught you in the King James Bible, you'd see a shootout. You'd see a gunfight, spiritually speaking. And I'm telling you, you've you got to defend what, you, what is precious to you. Yeah. And I know, I know, I know. In your garden variety, inky-dinky problems that come in, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But in the real issues of life... <coughs> When somebody is threatening your family or threatening you in your home. I mean, I know the Bible has a historical application, a doctor application, inspirational application. We teach it all the time. The rules of defending yourself are three-point outline two. Good steady grip, good sight alignment, and squeeze the trigger. (laughs) And then David's prayer. David's prayer. David's prayer when he went out to fight Goliath. Goliath was a lot bigger, a lot stronger. He had all this stuff. All David had was a slingshot. So they thought. David had a 45 caliber slingshot, but he had the power of God and truth on his side. And David's prayer, even though it's not in the Bible, 
I'll tell you what it is. Allow me this liberty. David's prayer in the Bible was, Dear God, steady my hand, steady my mind, steady my spirit, and put that slug right between that Philistine's eyeballs. In Jesus' name. And I want you to know that there has to be a balance in everything. The world is no friend of yours, and the devil would like to use some of his people to take from you what God has given you. And I'll tell you right now, the only two enemies that guns have is rust and politicians. (laughs) And you can break into your house, you can say, takes one of your kids, you can say, stop, halt. If they don't speak English, alto, (laughs) next season. Whatever language, the big muzzle pointing in their face is a universal language. Our society is so involved in saving the planet, saving gay sperm whales. They're not interested in saving your family. And you as a child of God, you have a right and you have a mandate from God to protect your family. Now, just remember what I always tell you. Never forget this. I know what it is in Raytown since we lost all the police officers. I know it's probably true in Kansas City because they're overwhelmed. And I have all the most respect for the police on this planet. They have a terrible job and they have my endearing respect and prayers. Every time I see one, I tell him, thank him, and just I do a soldier, thank you for your service. I'll tell the police officer, thank you for putting your life on the line to protect us and be safe. But I face it, in the world, and I know in Raytown, the 911, they even put it out, the 911 response uh, for if you're in an emergency in the middle of the night is 15, 12 minutes. You know a lot can happen in 15, 12 to 15 minutes? The 911 response is 12 to 15 minutes in Raytown, but the response time of a 357 Magnum is 1,200 feet per second. You figure it out. Well, I guess I'm done with that. <laughs> hey, and I'm not, hey, don't, don't misunderstand me. If you have to shoot somebody in your house and they break in and you shoot them, call 911, get a thing, and if you shot him bad, try to win him to Christ before he dies. No, I would. I'd get down there with him and I'd say, look, you now know that crime doesn't pay. <laughs> Jesus died for you. And you're about to meet him. <laughs> oh, boy. So there are times when you have to take your stand. You have to defend yourself. In the ministry, there will be times that people will will lie about you. You, But you don't lie back about them. There will be times when they lie about your ministry. Any pastor who's been in the ministry for probably more than five years will tell you, I'm telling you, every aspect of this is true. But you don't return the favor by, by, by saying something nasty about them. That makes you just like them. No, all you have to do is lay out the truth. 
You know, we have in this country a freedom of speech, which is a great thing. But I want to tell you something. You say something, you have to be held accountable for what you say. And you just lay out the truth. I tell everybody, you work with people all the time. The number one thing I tell you, document what you do. Document what you say. Document what you give them. I mean, you know, in this world that we live in today, it's hard to get away with a crime. I mean, there's security cameras everywhere. I don't know where you can't go that you're wearing on candid camera. And, uh, you know, they had that guy that blew, blew up those bombs at the Boston, Mas- uh, Boston Marathon. You know how they found him, them two guys? They put a grid together and put the, uh, put it, did it, and then they brought in a cop off the beat there with, with the Boston Police Department, and they saw in one, one, one camera which direction he came. So they commandeered every camera going down for a mile on that side, on this side, and tracked him where he came from, walking down to where he got when he set down his bomb. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Greg was telling me he took a class this week about blood splatter. You can shoot somebody and you can say, well, it's suicide, and they can go in and look at the splatter of the blood, and it tells you if it was a suicide or not. You can't get away with nothing. And I'm telling you, the truth, the truth will always hold the line in anything that isn't true. But you don't want to get your emotions involved because you don't have to. Because it's, you know, in any altercation, the truth will always be evident of who's right and who's wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now, that's why people with issues, and this has been true in my whole ministry, this is why people with issues will never sit down and, 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 and try to work it out because somebody lied. And shutting down with an open Bible and bringing the principles in will come away with liar, liar, pants on fire. You know, the pastor's job is, 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 is many, many dimensions to it. And there'll be times in any church, in any pastor, where an issue will come up, church-wide, some, some problem. And many times people will, will leave or people will cause problems and they're simply lying about it. They're not telling the truth. But the pastor realizes that he's in a tough position because he knows that the devil will use people like that to bring about what we call collateral damage because young Christians out there They'll make sure that the devil makes sure that they hear their side of the story. And it can hurt, you know, it's like throwing a, throwing a rock into a pond. It has that ripple effect. And each farther it gets out, the more people it touches. And the pastor's job in those situations, and I've been in it times in my life. Every pastor has. The job of a pastor is in those moments lead the church through those issues. Keep the collateral damage to a minimum. You know, you don't attack the person. You don't go after the person. You don't counter by lying about them. You simply walk your church through telling them the truth. Offering those people a chance to come in and fix it. But in common everyday issues, you just do what Jesus would do. 
you be a problem solver and not a problem causer. There were times, like in Matthew chapter 23, that Jesus took the scribes and the Pharisees to task. There'll be time that you have to do it. But he did it with truth. You know what his favorite line was? You do greatly err. Finish it, Kelly. You do greatly err. Not knowing the scriptures. She knows that because I said that to her many times when I was getting ready to paddle her. You do greatly err. Not knowing the scriptures. Why, if on the cross, when Jesus is being crucified, he was lied about, he was attacked, his ministry, they said he had a devil. If on the cross he could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, shouldn't we be able to do that? Amen. Amen. I mean, 98% of these petty life problems that people have, if it was just dealt with simply, by the Bible and holding people accountable to what they say, it will be over. Look at verse 22. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Now, let's talk about those coals of fire. You see, when you get into a situation with somebody, uh, the coals of fire will be the principles of the Word of God that you hold them accountable with. You follow in dealing with any circumstance. I never let my emotions get involved anymore. I'm older now. I understand more now. I see the big picture. I realize how things go. And I realize how powerful the truth is up against somebody that's not telling the truth. And I realize that if you want to burn somebody bad, if you want to stick them harder, faster, and stronger than any nasty thing you could ever say about them. Just sit down with them and open up the Bible and see what saith the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 18. We had a, my Lincoln Bible study this last week, and we're going through Matthew, and we were in Matthew chapter 18. And I showed them the format in Matthew 18 that God gave if you have a problem with somebody. He says you go to that person, and if that person won't hear you, then you, you take somebody with you. Every word is established, documentation. And if that won't work, then you take it to the church. And if that doesn't work, then he says after the third time, you treat them as a heathen and a publican. If they want to act like an unsaved person, then treat them like one. And he says down here that those coals of fire upon their head, that's the principles of the Word of God, that in any given situation, when you, try, when you bring in the principles, it'll solve the problem if they want to solve the problem. And he says the last part of that verse, 22, and the Lord shall reward thee. God will bless you for following the principles and using them, and he'll protect you through it. In any situation, God will always bless the one who follows the principles and stays with the book. That's just the way it works. Now, a great example of this in the New Testament will be the book of Romans, in particular Romans chapter 12. I've told you before that, you know, when you come through the New Testament, the way it lays out, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are fundamentally historical books. They will bring you from the Old Testament up into the beginning of the New Testament, and then you have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is an incredible book. Most people don't see the value of Acts as its true value. They look at it as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. No problem with that. Coming from the Jew to the Gentile, I get it, 100%. But I'll tell you what the book of Acts does even more for you if you're paying attention. The book of Acts defines for you. Remember now, the church age officially doesn't start 
to Acts chapter 20. So you have all this intermediate period of time here. And over in Revelation, when you have the seven periods of church history, it tells you clearly that the one begins was Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul, before he goes to Jerusalem, he's right there at Ephesus, and that's where fundamentally, technically speaking, the church age begins as far as God's time ticker or taking off the time. And he says there, when he comes up there, uh, you'll find that everything in the book of Acts will define for you where it's all going. The book of Acts is bit, written around three cities, Alexandria, Egypt, Antioch, Syria, and Rome. So when you get down a little bit farther into your manuscript evidence to want to find your Bible, you'll find there's three man families of manuscripts. You'll find there's the Alexandrian manuscripts called the Hesychian text. You'll find the Western text, which is the Roman text. And then you'll find your King James Bible comes from Antioch out of Syria, the Syrian Byzantine text. It's all right there in Acts. Acts defines everything for you. So Acts is key. Ah, but when you come to the book of Romans, where Acts defines everything, now Romans will be the Christian handbook on doctrine. Where Acts tells you what to look for, Romans tells you what we're going to believe. And chapter by chapter, he lays out to the church the doctrines that we are to believe that Christianity is built on. So in Romans chapter 1, he shows you that the Gentiles are a mess. In Romans chapter 2, he shows you that Jews are in the same mess. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, he shows you that the Jews following the law and the Gentiles following their conscience won't solve the mess. When you get into chapter 5, he tells you why following God and God's righteousness is the answer to the master. And down you go. When you get into chapter 12, chapter 12 is the great living sacrifice chapter. Chapter 12 of the book of Romans tells us that you and I should be a living sacrifice. Christ became the dead sacrifice for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. He won't ask you to die for him, other than maybe in special cases. But most of us will never be, God will never ask us to die for him physically, but he does ask for us to die for him spiritually and become that living sacrifice. And my, my life and my ministry... My personal guide to dealing with people, I call them my people principles, are found right here in this great chapter. Because I know that my life needs to be a living sacrifice. I know it isn't, but I know it needs to be. I know it needs to be that I'm not worried about what I get from you. I'm only worried about what I can give you and what sacrifices I have to make to give you that. I'm willing to do that based on the sacrifice that he was willing to do to give me what I've got. And he says in verse 9, I'll just give you a few of these. In verse 9, he says, let love be without dissimulation. By definition, dissimulation is, is hiding under a false appearance. We tell people we love them when we really don't love them. We tell people I'll pray for you when we have no intention of praying for them. Uh, our love is all feigned. Our love is all conditional. My, m- most pastors' love for their people is based on what they can get, he can get from them, not un- unconditional. Christ's love, if, if God had to love you and me of what he was going to get from us, we'd be in hell this morning. Amen. God's love had to be unconditional. He had to love you the way you are. He had to love me the way I am, and I separated me from you because he had to put a lot of overtime on me. He took us where we were. And yet I find that God's people are not willing to take people where they're at. We all want one thing in the Christian life. We want people to be perfect, except us. Now, you're not going to find perfect people. 
You're going to have to love people unperfectly because if you wait to find the perfect person, you're never going to find them. And he says, he says, let love be without dissimulation. In verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. You know, Christianity is a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. I'm Father Bob. <laughs> and, and you know, you know as well as I do, you all have families. Is there any perfect family? No. Let me tell you, I won't ask about yours. Let me tell you about mine. <laughs> Volumes could be filled. Everybody's got a crazy aunt. Everybody's got a crazy uncle. Everybody's got crazy in-laws. Everybody, no family's perfect. And yet, you know what? You've got to, unless you want to just have some real hell on earth, you've got to learn to live in that situation. Now, I, I don't have the best relationship with, with the other side of my, my family. My, my, my sister and my brother-in-law, we're cool. I love them to death. But, I, I, you know, I, I don't have the best relationship. But I'll tell you this, I, 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 I extend myself to work on it, and I, 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 I just, I realize that that's what I'm up against. I don't like the things that they do. I don't like some of the things they say. I certainly don't like some of the things they believe. But you know what? That's where they're at. And you know what? I've been in situations where I extended myself because I thought I'd have a chance maybe to reach them. I don't have any illusion of that here. I just do it because that's what Jesus would do. And I try to be the best testimony I can to them. Uh, you know, they go through tough times, I'll be sympathetic for them. I may be thinking something else in my mind, but I'm not going to say that to them because they don't want to hear that. They, they need to know that, that, that I'm family. A family stick together. It doesn't mean that families don't have their issues. We all have our issues. My sister and I love each other now at this point in life. She's, she is one of the finest women on this planet. She would do anything for anybody. And she likes dogs too. But she is, the, she is, the, she is one of the greatest women I've ever met in my life. I, I've never had any problem with John, her, her, um, her husband. He, has been, he, is just, he is one of the finest men on this planet. And I, and I love him death. But my sister and I didn't grow up that way. We had many knockdown drags out. My sister went through her wild time just like I did. My sister was very rebellious as she was growing up. And she would tell you this. She couldn't tell her anything. She was a genius. She was so smart. She graduated from high school when she was a junior. I was so stupid I had to bribe the sixth grade teacher to get out of into the seventh grade. It, it was a thing where she was a genius. And, and you know, and, but she, she had a wild side to her back in the day. And I remember nobody could tell her anything. I remember one time she wanted to dye her hair, you know, yellow, blonde, because that was the rage back then. Well, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield and all that. This is back before interview. And so my mom didn't want her to do it, and she wouldn't do it anyhow. And I don't know what she did, but it turned out green. <laughs> now, if that would have happened today, it would have been okay. <laughs> well, you see some weird hair colors out there, I'll tell you what. I saw one lady, her hair was so rusty red, I thought me and a little WD-40 would take that rust right off of that. But then it, but, but, you know, and then, but, but today, she's, she's, she's incredible. I mean, we, we have a genuine love for each other. Because you know what? Families got to get over everything. I feel bad when you see families that, that can't get together. I, I get that. And sometimes it happens. And sometimes it's no fault of yours. Sometimes you've done everything. But the circumstances are, are out of your control. But we need to be kindly affected to one another here. I mean, we need to work 
We all have the Bible, the same Bible. We say we believe it. Then he says in verse 13, distributing to the necessities of the saints, given to hospitality. That, that, that's taking care of people the best you can. That's seeing what people's needs are. That's not being such a world under yourself, you know. Uh, most people can't see the big picture in life because they'll keep looking at a self-portrait. Then he says in verse 14, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. You know, you've got to learn not to take it personal. You've got to realize that people go through issues. They go through struggles. You know, I mean, I absolve other people's stupidity through my own stupidity. Then he says in verse 16, you know, uh, be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend of, to men of of low estate. Now it says there that we're being the same mind together. You know, when two Christians have the same mind, the mind of Christ, and are using the principles of the Word of God, the problems go away. Because you'll use the principles. You'll use the principles. And then he closes out this great chapter with verses 17, 18, 19, and 20, and 21, where we find here uh, our verse in Proverbs uh, 25, uh, 20. He says, uh, verse 17, recompense to no man uh, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's a great principle. Be honest with people. Don't tell them one thing and then do something behind their back. And when somebody does something evil to you, don't get even. Don't get even. He says in verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceful with all men. That's a great principle. I'm going to tell you right now, you can't always do that. But if you can't do it, it needs to make sure you can't do it not because of something that you did. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. I like that. That's a great principle. Give place under wrath. You know where that place is? (laughs) In the principles of the Word of God. That's the place you put your wrath. And there's things that people will do that will frost you, irritate you, anger you. And I'm, I'm, I'll be the first to tell you, people I've done in my life, they've done things that have angered me, and I'll process it for a while, deal with it for a while, and then I'll just simply think about all the times I've angered God, and it kind of just goes away. <laughs> Therefore, here's our verse, verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now, there's the principle. Now, this is a great example of Paul. This is what I want you to see. Taking an Old Testament passage and an Old Testament principle to Israel and then giving you the inspirational application how it crosses over right into our world today. And he closes out verse 21 with a great verse. Be not overcome of evil. Because evil can overcome you if you let it. But I want to tell you something. No evil will ever overcome you unless you allow it to. Nobody has control of your emotions. Nobody has control of how you respond or how you react. Nobody. You have complete control. Bible says over there in 1 Corinthians chapter, I think it's 13 or 14, it says the prophets have rule over their own spirit. You, 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 you have your own rule. Nobody, nobody can take advantage of that unless you allow them. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a great principle. 
I remember one time when I was in the army years and years and years ago, and I wasn't a Christian back then, but there was this kid. His first name was John. I can't remember his last name. Tall kid from California, good-looking kid, blonde hair. And he was a committed Christian, and everybody gave him trouble. They would laugh at him and make fun of him. And when everybody was playing poker at night and doing this or whatever they were doing, you would see him reading his Bible. And before he went to bed, he would kneel down and he would pray before he went to bed. He didn't, he wasn't one of these guys who said, oh God, bless all these sinners. No, he just got on his knees with his Bible and he prayed. You know, the guys did, they threw their combat boots at him. They laughed at him. They turn the lights out, everybody go to bed. You know, in the morning, he shined every one of those combat boots. Now, how do, you go, how do you go against that? What do you do with that? I mean, here you are, you threw your boots down to make fun of this guy because he's praying, and then he polished your boots for you. You know what he did? He overcame evil with good. Now, I know it's a balance. When somebody breaks into your house, you overcome evil with a good shot. <laughs> and the petty everyday stuff, you overcome evil with good. The principle is the Word of God. Now back to Proverbs chapter 25, verses 23 through 24 here. Move through this thing. North wind driveth away rain. Now simply put, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, which is likened to wind in the Bible, will clear any, any air of right and wrong and any, any problems. It'll clear it. The north wind, Holy Spirit of God, driveth away any rain. You've got problems in your world. You're down to deal with the problems. You could just get down on your knees and pray together and ask the Holy Spirit of God to open up the Word of God. It'll go away. It'll expose who's right and who's wrong. Truth and the principles always will. Verse 24. The housetop. That's a vantage point to see trouble coming. Doctrinally, historically too, because historically it was them going up and seeing Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar coming down. But doctrinally and historically, they're going up on a literal rooftop and they're seeing the what's coming their way that's going to try to take them captive. From a practical application, the housetop will be your vantage point of the principles of the Word of God that God will show you what's coming your way before it hits you. I mean, that's probably hard for the average person, but any preacher that's been in the ministry 10 or 20 years, you learn the patterns of things. Over the years, I've seen people come in in my ministry not so much here, but uh, in times past, and based on their attitude, their lifestyles, and their approach to the Bible, I would say to myself, that person's going to be a problem at some point. Usually it's people that, that, that have a lot of money. I've had all my ministry people that had a lot of money. I thank God there anybody, no millionaires in this church. I really do. I had a guy one time that we were trying to start a church in a little town here in northern Missouri, and uh, he wanted a pastor up there and all that stuff, and there was a little group of people up there, and the guy going up was going to have to, you know, uh, get a job and all this, and this guy come up, and he said, and I didn't like this guy, didn't trust this guy from the get-go, just something about it, and he stepped up in a meeting, and he said, you know what, I've talked to my wife, and we're going to pay this pastor's complete salary for the first three years he's up here. Everybody went crazy. I thought to myself, that's never going to work. 
Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good that the first time you have a problem and then he pulls your money. I know how it works. It sounds real good that he doesn't get his way in something because it is nothing better for a rich guy than buying a preacher. I know how it works. I know how it works. If he really wanted to do it, you know what he would have done? He wouldn't have said anything to anybody. He'd have got a check someplace that nobody could have traced, and he'd have put a note in there like the kidnappers do where you cut out to paste the things on the paper. <laughs> I watch too many Criminal Minds episodes, I'm telling you. And, 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 and nobody knows it. I'll tell you something else. I've had in my, my years over the ministry parents that their kids could never do anything wrong. That's always somebody else's fault. When I see that, I know that sooner or later, Zach's going to have a problem. <laughs> Zach's going to have to deal with somebody and they're going to run home and tell mommy, mommy's going to call me and uh, that I'm going to have to, you know, get, get in the middle of it. And uh, it's a thing where it's, uh, you know, because I just know those things happen. Now, we don't have those problems today. Your parents let you kick those kids all over the place. That's good. <laughs> but it's a thing where, and you work so well good with all the parents. I get that. But I've been in my situation. Hey, I was a youth pastor. I had two people in a church years and years ago. They're both dead now, and I don't even remember their name. But anyway, Steve would know. Steve Brackeen would know. Steve would probably know this story because Steve was in the mafia back then, and he was part of that whole system. But this kid, he was in a high school kid, and I was a youth pastor. And he got over to his girlfriend's house or one of those girls. You know, I don't know if it was his girlfriend or not. But he, he was a very spoiled brat. And uh, this is back in the day when I still had my white horse. And this girl called me, and she says, he's over here, and he's acting really crazy, and he says he's, he's going to kill himself. Well, what I should have done, just so you know, what I should have done is called mom and dad and say, your son is over at so-and-so's house. They're having some issues. He's threatening to kill himself. Now, uh, I, you need to probably go deal with it. Oh, no, 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 not in that day. No, no. This was about 1130 at night. No, 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 no. I could hear him in the barn. (laughs) Cowboy up! I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. I see by your outfit that you're a cowboy too. We see by our outfits that we are both cowboys. You get you a cowboy suit. You can be a cowboy too. I know how it goes. So I went out to the garage. Ho, ho, ho. Saddle him up. I could hear at night. I could hear those metal cleats on the street. Nothing. Back in the day, nothing motivated me like steel hooves on the cobblestone streets of Raytown. My wife still says as I rode off, she could see sparks fly out from those hooves as I rode to save this young man from himself. <laughs> so I get there. He's obstinate because he's busted, see? So I says, get in a car to take you home. I know. You thought I was going to say, get on a horse, we're going home. 
So I'm taking, and I can see, now I'm starting to see that this, you know, this kid has changed completely. Now he's saying, well, why don't you just run into that pole on the freeway and kill, kill us both? And I said, because it's my wife's car, and she would, <laughs> if I survived, she would kill me for sure. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not going to break my horse's neck for you. <laughs> so I get him home, okay? I get him home. Mom and Dad, this is now like midnight. Lights on the front porch. Walk in. I explain to them, Dad and Mom are not looking happy. Now, I'm thinking they're not looking happy because of the fact that, uh, you know, that he's done wrong. No, 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 no. They're not happy with me. And, they, and the first word out of the dad's mouth, I said, I explained it, and the dad said, well, we'll have to see about that. I knew I was busted right there. Now, see, the boy played his parents because he'd been playing his parents for years. So now the parents, the boy said to the parents, I ain't going back to church. He never did come back to church. They went to see the pastor the next day. Pastor called me, and he was cool about it. He knew what was going on. But he said, we got a problem here because the parents are blaming you because he's not coming back to church. And I got it. I mean, I understood. I, I learned my lesson. I, you know, I, stepped, I actually stepped over the bounds. I should have called the parents. had them come and get him. And if the kid had killed himself by then, you can use two big glad bags till the body bags get there. Hey. I'm telling you. I, over the years, I, I've seen people, you know, they come in and you, you just know, you're gonna, there's going to be a problem here. Uh, I've had people in my ministry that you couldn't teach them anything. They always knew everything. And you know what? When you think you all know everything, when you're coming up against a guy who doesn't know everything, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I know. I'm in trouble. I'm gonna, you're going to have problems. And what has, the Bible will put you on the rooftop and through insight of the principles, perception to the Word of God and discernment, you begin to see everything, how it, it works out. And you just keep preaching the book, the truth, and, you know, you know you, but you've got to remember this. Always be willing to sit down and work something out. Yeah. You, you have to. You know, with husbands and wives, you have to. With you and your kids, you have to. With brother and sisters in Christ, you have to. With me and you, you have to. I can't tell you how many times that we could have solved the problem if somebody would have just brought me the problems that are going to everybody in the world. And that's because there should be nothing that two Christians can't work through the truth if the truth is of the same mind. You know, over the years, I've given you key principles that I've found based on my time in dealing with people and learning the patterns and all the situations and actually the mistakes that I have made. I've watched people for almost 50 years. I've watched them. I've studied them. I've seen them at their best and I've seen them at their worst. I've had people that I have honestly, unconditionally give everything I had to them and get a sharp stick in the eye. I have seen people that I've given them everything unconditionally and they do something with it. I've seen both sides of the fence. And these things that I've learned over the years, and I, you, you just, I give them to you from time to time. I just never gave them to you in one setting. But these things have saved me a lot of time and a lot of energy and, and a lot of grief. 
I call them my 10 absolutes in ministry or my observations from a rooftop. First thing I always tell myself, and I've told you this before, you, know, I, you don't need to write these down. They're not that good. <laughs> First thing I always tell myself, and never forget, that the ministry is people. And we think that because we get into ministry with people, that people won't have problems. People won't always do what you want them to do. They won't always do what's right. And I know there's accountability of factor. There has to be a basis of truth. I get it. I get it. But uh, you're going to realize as, you know, and being human, there's no perfect human being. I have people all the time that they got this illusion that they're looking for, you know, no church is perfect. But they get this illusion. Well, I don't like this one. I don't like that. They're looking for the perfect church. I got news for you. There is no perfect church. And I'll tell you something else. If by some strange phenomena you would find the perfect church, don't join it. Because it won't be perfect anymore. We all have issues. We're family. We don't go trying to find the the utopia church that doesn't have any issues. We don't need to do that. We know the ministry is people. We are going to have issues. We use the Bible, the principles, to resolve those issues. Then the second thing I've learned, boy, have I learned this. Time proves all things. When nobody else will tell, time will. The hand of God is in a person's life will reveal itself. That Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. I've seen people that claim to be right with God, claim this, brother, in 5, 10, 15 years. I got a message I'll preach to you sometime. I've never preached it. I got it done for 25 years, and this never felt like preaching it. But it's a great message. I keep adding to it. So it would probably take us four or five hours to get through it now. <laughs> but the name of my message is, where are they now? Where are they now? Where are the people that you started to disciple that didn't like the way you did it? You stick in the book. You're still working with people. Where are they now? Is their life better? The third thing. Oh, boy, this is a good one, too, for me. Short-term versus long-term. Look at the short-term decisions you make in light of the long-term consequences. That's a great principle. The fourth one, and this is so true, you can't make somebody do right more than they want to. You just can't. You know, you find people that you'll work with strongholds in their life, and you've all worked with them. I've worked with them all my life. They, they're, they're into drugs, they're into alcohol, they're into, they're into whatever. Uh, you know, it, it, life must be about the choices that we make. And when you start to work with somebody, you got to be very careful because you want them to do right more than they do. And so you will violate the biblical principles because you think you're helping them and then you'll wind up getting taken advantage of. People with strongholds will lie to you about everything on this planet. 
People that are alcoholics, people that are drug addicts, people that are hooked up with drugs, they will look at you and lie to you and just go out and do whatever they want to do. You have to understand that there has to be a basis and accountability of truth in anybody you're working with. The fifth one. I know you've heard all these before, but, you know, humor me this morning. You can't fix issues with the same thinking process that caused those issues. You've got to change your thinking patterns. Patterns of thought will lead to attitudes, and attitudes will lead to action. If you want to fix the action, you've got to attack the attitude. You've got to change how you look at things and how you think about things if you're ever going to change the long-term outcome of the action. The sixth one. Be smarter than the problem. You want to see it as it really is, any issue. And the way you do that is through the principles because there's so many examples and models in the Bible to show you exactly what you're dealing with. I give them to you in people ministry all the time. I give them to you in institutes when we run across them. You want to see things as they really are, not as they appear. And when you have a problem in your life, you want to be honest about it. You want to follow the principles, not the feeling. The seventh one, and I've heard you guys preach on this in devotions and everything. It's a simple three-point concept. Look behind, look around, and look ahead. In any situation you have to deal with, you want to, first of all, ask the person, have the person understand how they got where they're at. That's important. Once they understand how they got where they're at, then you want to know and want to help them understand what they can do to get out of it And then you want to put a plan where you're going to go from here to get out of it. You got to look behind. You got to look where you're at. And then you got to look a way out of it. The eighth one. I've watched this over the years. Good people don't leave good churches. Now, I know you move away. We have little Lisa and her husband that gets transferred to Marine Corps down there, but she's on this morning, I guarantee you. She's even in one of the prayer groups on, on the phone. She's in discipleship on the phone. So I, I, there are exceptions to that. I get that. I get that. I get that. But, you know, most people leave churches because they don't have any real investment in it. I look at some of you out here, who, which is most of you, if you left next week because you got your nose bent on a joint, who would pick up all the people you're working with? Will you just leave them? You know what? When push comes and shove, and you don't always get your own way, and maybe you get a little nose bent on a joint about something, you know what the thing that'll hold your feet to the fire? The investment you've made in the place that God has put you in here. Amen. The investment of you, your family. I mean, let me ask you a question. What little petty problem could it come into your life that would cancel out all the blessings that God has given to you in working with somebody and seeing God change their lives. Really? Come on, really? You know why they do? You don't have any investment. It means nothing to you because you did nothing with it. It's just a better deal for you. I get it. The ninth one is, is so true, we talk about this all the time, that if it starts wrong, it will usually end wrong. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain to build it. You get hooked up with a guy or a gal and you don't do it biblically, it's probably not going to work out the way that God wants it to. You don't train your kids right and train them in the principles of the Word of God and hold them accountable, probably not going to work out for you the way it should. 
And then the tenth one, based on what we're talking about today. People who will not work to solve a problem are the problem. It's just that simple. It's a simple formula. The person who is willing to sit down and fix any issue has nothing to hide. They're open and honest. The person who won't knows that they don't have the truth on their side. And I'm telling you right now, uh, Christian, in Christianity, the love in Christianity uh, will be with dissimulation. It'll be false, phony on the outside, but when it comes down to really rubber meeting the road and dealing with the principles in any given situation, you won't do it. Our job, he said over there in Romans chapter 12, if it be possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. That's what we do because we're supposed to be like-minded. We're supposed to look at our enemies and understand the big picture why our enemies are the way they are. And we try to help them. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but becoming like them is never the answer because somebody has to stand for what's right. Somebody at the end of the day has to go to the Bible in any given situation and point out book, chapter, verse of why I do what I do. And when you can't fix something with somebody, when you can't get something worked out with somebody, then simply make sure that truth and the principles of truth are on your side. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This brings us back to Proverbs and everything we've been looking about, people ministry, Bible Institute, your involvement and investment with people's lives. It simply comes down to the point of an importance of a principled life. Giving your life by the principles of the Word of God. Every decision you make, everything that you look at, have a principle that will carry you through. Document what you do, document what you say, and let it all fall back on the Word of God. You can never go wrong with the principles. Well, we'll hold up there.